We're going to get right into our message. I would just ask one favor of you, if you would. Um, you know, I, I am, I'm honored. I'm, I'm so glad that I'm able to be here for the Veterans Day banquet. I was just remembering back a few years ago when we had it here in the Fellowship Hall and, and to see the, the freedom that God gave me that night in order to be able to share the truth. And if you know anything about that, I mean, it was freedom from on high. That was not man-made that was God-ordained freedom. And I'll tell you, there's only one thing that I've ever seen that gives that type of freedom. You know what that is? Prayer. And so I would just ask you, if you have not already been doing so, please, please be praying for tomorrow night. Pray for those folks who will be here, that they would have open hearts and open minds. Uh, pray that uh, all of us are able to be a godly witness and testimony for the cause of Christ, and I pray specifically that you would give me the that God would give me the exact words to say uh, tomorrow night that may, by God's grace, be life changing. Amen. And so pray if you would uh, for tomorrow night. First Corinthians chapter three. If you turn in your Bibles there, and as you're getting there, let me just share with you that I have been on the road an awful lot this uh, last couple of. Uh, Month with schools being back in the session, but when I am at home in Tennessee and I'm able to be there, I have been doing a uh, Sunday school class for probably close to a year now as I uh, dove into teaching through the book of Romans. And I love it. It's just been such a refreshing time. And people say, how in the world did you ever end up in the book of Romans? And it's an interesting story because we have a lady in our church. She would probably sit about right in there somewhere. And so she's there every Sunday morning. But she just recently got saved by the grace of God. She came out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. She had been a Jehovah's Witness pretty much all of her life. And by um, her cousin praying for her for years and years and years, she moved to Tennessee, started coming to church. A real skeptic of our church to begin with, but as the Lord would continue to chip away and whittle and whittle, she, by the grace of God, just got saved here recently. And so when I was talking about uh, doing a new Sunday school series, she came up and she said, I would love for you to go through the book of Romans. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. A newborn believer and here wanting that. And, and, And one of the reasons was because there is so much of the heresy within even the Jehovah's Witnesses that comes out of the book of Romans where they've twisted the scripture. And so, you know, it's been one of those amazing things as I've been teaching through that uh, being able to highlight certain verses that if you take this verse here out of context, you can make it say just about anything. But if you keep it in context, then uh, it's an entirely different message. And it's just been a real refreshing time. I say all that because as I started going through, I came across this phrase in the book of Romans that popped out several times. It's this phrase that says, Know ye not. And, you know, and, and, I, and I thought, well, that's a really cool phrase. And, you know, we're the Lord. Paul, under inspiration, you know, from the, uh, the Holy Spirit, as he says this, know ye not. And I started really digging into that and understanding what that meant. And that's mentioned like 12, 14 times in the New Testament. And the aspect of know, you know, uh, multiple Greek words that, that, that encapsulate that word by itself. In some cases, it comes out to where it says, uh, Paul saying, don't be ignorant. You know, know ye not, don't be ignorant. Some places it's, hey, I want you to behold this. I want you to perceive this. I want you to understand this. A little bit more uh, tactful than don't be ignorant. But, you know, uh, from that standpoint, and it's, it's a great phrase. So as I started through that, of all the times in the New Testament, it's 14 times. And a couple times is in the book of Corinthians. 
And as I got to that one in Corinthians, the Lord just really hit me. Because I thought, wow, Lord, that's, that, that's an amazing phrase that you want us. Can I say it this way? No, you not. God wants us to perceive something. He wants us to understand something very clearly about ourselves as it pertains to Him. Can I say it this way? Living in us. And what does that look like? What's that mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, would you join me? In, in this particular passage, I'm going to begin in verse 9 and read a couple of verses, but here we go. For we are laborers together with God. You're not God's husbandry. I mean, you are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so by fire. Look at the next verse. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, he shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Father, I just pray that you would help us this morning as we look at this truth in which you shared with us about how you view us as the temple of God. And Lord, what does that mean to us? And how should we respond to understanding such a truth? We praise you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. You know, Paul writing to the church of Corinth is explaining that how Jesus is the foundation of this relationship with God. And he uses a couple of different illustrations here. One, on the first part of the chapter here, he uses the uh, illustration of the vineyard and the husbandman and the husbandry and all that goes along with that. Much of that is, is almost the same as what you would read in John chapter uh, uh, 14 and 15 uh, of the vineyard and all that's in, uh, implied with that. But then he switches gears and he talks about this aspect of, of referring to uh, building of a building uh, as, as Paul is giving this illustration. And, and he talks about who has built this building the proper lasting materials of this building. But then he switches gears one more time and puts another emphasis on this building in verses 16 and 17 and realize that this is just no ordinary building that God is talking about here. This building that God is talking about here is something that's very near and dear to his heart. It's the temple. And goes on further to express that he's not just talking about a temple, he's talking about us as that temple. I don't know about you, but that's probably something to stand up and take notice of when the Lord is making that kind of illustration. And saying, ye are that building, ye are that temple. So what is he talking about? Know ye not? Perceive or understand the importance of this truth? 
When we see this, we understand that this is uh, not only just mentioned to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but if you have your uh, turn your uh, Bibles, just go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Hold your place there in, in verse 3. We'll be coming back there. But in verse 6, I mean chapter 6, look down at verse 19. It's interesting. He reiterates this again. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. But then he's going to clarify a couple of other things here. Which ye have of God, look down, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, or in your spirit, which are God's. So we see the same truth as is reiterated here to the church of Corinth. And so, you know, if it's mentioned once, it's obviously important, but as it's mentioned over and over again with clarification, I think it's something that we need to perceive and understand. Amen? But if he were just talking about just the general temple in and of itself, that would be one thing. But when you study this out in the Greek, you come to the realization, wait a second, he's not just talking about the temple in general. Because the word that's used there in the Greek is this word N-A-O-S. I can't pronounce all Greek words, but let's just say naos. And if that's the word and he's using it, that specifically refers to a specific part of the temple. The inner sanctuary of the temple. We might call it the aspect of the, the holy place. And then, of course, we know that's also inside that sanctuary is not just a holy place, but we'd also see a place called the most holy place. Some people would even refer to it as the holy of holies. That is what is encapsulated in what Paul is saying here to the church of Corinth. says, look, you are that innermost sanctuary of God. And I want you to perceive that and understand that. Behold what I'm telling you and what that means. It's just no ordinary building. It was saying that from the, from the perspective of what God was telling us here, as in this most holy place, this is, this is an amazing picture when we grab hold of this. And I know he's using it as a metaphor meaning the spiritual temple consisting of all saints of the ages of whom the Holy Spirit dwells. But when we think about what God is saying here, then here's some things that we need to understand about the temple here. In general, the temple was a special place that the children of Israel, where they would come to sacrifice, where they would come to worship. But specifically, it was a place of reverence. It was a place of holiness. Why? Because it was the place where God dwelt. Here in these passages that we see this, he makes it clear to us, you're the temple, and the reason that you are the temple is because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Amen? Now, when did that take place? The moment that we understood the fact that we're sinners, the moment that we understood that we were in need of a Savior, the moment that we understood that there was a penalty for that sin, the moment that we understood that there was a payment that was made for that sin other than, you know, through Jesus Christ. Nothing else, no works, no, no merit, no anything else other than just simply by the name of Jesus. For there is no other salvation given among men whereby we must be saved. 
is through Jesus Christ alone. We understand that. We know that. But at the moment that that transaction takes place by the fact that we have just simply put our faith, our dependence, our trust in Jesus Christ, we become the home, the abode of the Holy Spirit of God in us forever. And it changes us. And we are not the same. And we have to constantly keep in mind that I belong to God. I belong to Christ. I am His. He has the right to say what takes place in my life and what does not. And He expects us, as the temple of God, that it would be a home of holiness and reverence. Amen? That is what He is implying here when we see this truth. So with that, we have to think about a little bit more about this aspect of the temple. Or even if I could go back to the predecessor of the temple, which was the tabernacle. We, see, we read all about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus and of the construction of it and all that went into that and why God had instructed Moses and the children of Israel to, to even have the tabernacle. But then when we look even then at the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, what do we find? Was it just a barren tabernacle? No, there was several pieces of furniture that was inside there. When's the last time that we stopped and looked at each piece of that furniture and asked the question, why was it there? Not only why was it there, but what did it represent? And so I think that if we understand that we are to be that sanctuary, and, and even those pieces of furniture, which would be symbolic today, maybe in and us, think about this. What was there? Well, first of all, we find the lampstand that was there, and it was to be filled with pure olive oil. And you know anything about Bible uh, symbology, we see that oil was always a representation of the Holy Spirit. And we see that the lampstand was to burn day and night forever. Never to be to go out from that standpoint. And we look at that and we say that that was the instruction of keeping it lit forever. And, and when we say, you know, what does something like that represent? It, simply, it represented God's light of direction, protection, and illumination to the children of Israel. To, or if I could just say to his children, so that we make sure we understand it. We see something else that was there, the table of showbread. This is where the bread was to be put out fresh every day, continually. And we say, was there some representation? Obviously, yes, it was the representation of God's sustainment and God's provision and God's nourishment that He showed over and over to the children of Israel. But even here in the tabernacle is a representation that this is going to be something that's going to be there forever. The altar of incense, where the sweet aroma of the incense would burn continually. Never to stop, never to be trifled with as far as what that incense was to be made up of as well, as we'll talk about here in a moment. Representing the prayers of God's people and God answering those prayers and showing that he was able and willing and always desiring to meet the needs of his children on a continual basis as we would come to him. Amen. And then we saw the Ark of the Covenant that would be there. And the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled once a year by the high priest as, as an atonement, as a, as a covering for the sins of God's people. Ironically, 
I'm sure as every one of you have studied in your different Bible classes, we would also that every single one of those uh, pieces of furniture is also a picture of who? It's a picture of Jesus Christ as well. And we see that each piece of that furniture represents Christ as a picture because He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the mediator between God and man. And He is the ultimate sacrifice, which would, come, which would not only just um, cover our sins, but 1 John 1, 7 makes it very clear that He would not just cover our sins, He would wash them away. Amen? Now think about that for a moment, because this is all those things that represented the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or of the temple. And God says, again, to remind us, know ye not that you are that temple today. Christ lives in you. He is your light. He is your sustainer. He is the one that has complete desire to hear from you every single day. And to answer those prayers as it is according to His will. Amen? Amen. And He has already taken care of the sin in your life by washing it away once and for all. Ye are that temple. But let me help you with something. Does God take this issue of the temple seriously in the Old Testament specifically, yes or no? Absolutely. Did he, did he help us to understand that this thing of the temple is not to be trifled with? It's not to be played around. It's, it's a serious thing to God. And the answer is absolutely. And I say that because of this. Israel grew overly accustomed to having the temple in their presence. And, and because of that, later in time, can I say it this way? They began to take the temple of God for granted. And in some cases had even become so lax in how that they did things with the temple and with even the temple furniture. And becoming lax and lazy, God had to stop and say, stop, hang on. I've told you. This is serious business to me. Don't trifle with it. For instance... We read about in one place in Numbers chapter 3, where two of the sons of Aaron decided that, hey, you know what? God told us that within the temple, when it comes to the incense, and when it comes to the fire uh, of offering it a certain way, for whatever reason, humanly thinking, whatever it was, they chose to offer a strange fire unto God. Let me ask you a question. How'd that go? How'd that turn out for them? Not so well. God made the point to say, I told you that there's a specific way in which I wanted this to be done. And the consequences were great. Fast forward just a few years. David is choosing to move the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after it had been separated from the children of Israel for a few years. Somebody forgot to read the instruction manual about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved. And in the process, somebody got the wise idea, hey, 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 
that's a little bit too much strain on the shoulders of these guys. Why don't we do this just a little easier on all of us? Why don't we just create a new cart and put that Ark of the Covenant up on the cart and we'll just roll it into Jerusalem and fanfare and a big, uh, big feast. And uh, it, it was exciting until the cart hit a hole, until the Ark shook, and until Uzzah reached up to stabilize the Ark. And that all of a sudden became a rain on their parade. Dancing stopped. Music stopped. Us is dead. Why? Because, once again, God had told them, this is the specific way that you deal with the temple and even, even the furniture of the temple. Don't trifle with it. Don't just think that you can just add your way of doing things and think that it's okay. Keep that thought in mind, would you? We'll get back to that in a minute. God was serious about how He intended things to be handled, even within the temple. Amen? And there was a consequence. Truth of the matter is, you know, what was all this saying? It's saying that this temple is no ordinary building. It was saying that when God tells us how to handle these spiritual things, that it's no joke. It's not something to be made, can I put it this way, ordinary. It's not something to be made common. God's, not, God's word is not to be trifled with, nor to be ignored. Amen? But here's the question. Did Israel learn their lesson? Ah, no, sad to say. Because we find throughout history, even after David, that they continued to slip off even into this thing called idolatry. And ultimately, the temple was filled with all kinds of idols. The children of Israel had become so idolatrous that God removed himself from them. And in the process, finally, God says, I'm just removing temple from your presence as well. And it was destroyed not once, but twice throughout history because of the exact same infractions over and over again from that, from that perspective. See, God would basically answer their abominations with eventually just destroying the temple. I thought it was interesting how that even in this passage here, God uses that exact same terminology. Did you catch it? There in chapter 6, when he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple, which is in you, which is of God, and you're not of your own. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your spirit. And we saw that in chapter 4 about the aspect in verse 17, If any man defiled the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So what is he saying to us he, when he says, Know ye not, know ye not that ye are that temple. And that God has an expectation, even for us, as I just read that passage there in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. God has an expectation for the temple, even yet today. And it's interesting how it hasn't changed. You know what God expects of his temple? Holiness and reverence. Because, see, that's where God abides. And if we catch hold of what that means for just a second, 
then it becomes very difficult for us then to get too far involved with the things of this world. Do you think it's an accident that God says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, touch not the unclean thing? And I shall receive you? Is that God's words that he said? Why did he say that? Because you're the temple. He has an expectation for each one of us. And even to the point of, can I say it this way? How we live. Because how we live affects the temple of God. Amen? Are you with me or am I just making this all up? So if God is saying that, then he has expectations of us in how we treat this temple. First and foremost, it comes with this understanding. Are you the temple? Well, if you've never put your trust in dependence in Jesus Christ alone and your faith completely in Him, then you're not even the temple. So, Brother Willis, you do realize that you're talking to you know, a chapel of college folks in a Bible school. Folks, let me just tell you something. I've learned over the last few years, don't assume anything. You could have been here for years. You could have the greatest of parents and they're godly and they love the Lord and they could have been telling you the truth uh, from the time that you were knee high to a tadpole. You know, however, you know, young you were, I will tell you that I have I have stopped making assumptions because there may be people right here who have heard these truths. But you've never uh, you've never come to the point of submitting yourself and say, I need that. I need, I need to, by faith, just simply put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, I'd encourage you. Make, make sure you take care of that first and foremost. But I know most of us in here have done that years ago, and I praise the Lord for that. So it comes with the understanding, and so ye are the temple, right? So is there an expectation that comes with that from God's perspective? And the answer is yes. What are they? Remember this. God said it. You're not your own. You're not your own. You are and forever a child of God. And because you belong to him, he does have expectations for you. And even in how you live your life. You and I are to be first and foremost yielded to him. Question. How often are we to be yielded to him? When's the last time you've been asked that? How often are we to be yielded to God? Every single day. How many of you say that's kind of difficult? Oh, come on. Did you raise your hand too? Yeah, yeah. Because I don't care who you are, I find that sometimes that's difficult because we live in a a world and in an age that is constantly, constantly pulling at us in every single direction, trying to pull us away from the things of God. Listen, in the chaplaincy, in the military, it, it is horrible at times. And there are folks who are just trying to pull you away, to get you to do things, to, to get you to say things, to, to get you... And, and I think it's really for, the, to, for this perspective. They want to see if you're, going, if you're the real deal or not. And if you're going to cave in. You know how many times I've been asked over the years, Hey, chaplain, come out and have a drink with us. Hey, chaplain, come out and go see this movie. Or, hey, chaplain, come out and go do this with us. They weren't interested in being my friend. Can I tell you? That wasn't their intent. Their intent was to see whether or not I was going to cave 
and give in or whether I was going to be the real thing or not. It was a test. Say, why do you say that? Because soldiers are smart. And here's one thing I found out about soldiers. They want to see if you're the real deal. Do you think any soldier is going to come to a chaplain, really, and pour his soul out to that chaplain about spiritual issues if that chaplain is a drunk and a carouser and a woman chaser and all the things just like they are? Do you think anybody's going to do that? No, see, soldiers are like, ah, if he's the real deal. And then when they see that you're the real deal, you've gained their credibility and their respect so that when they have a real issue in their life, they're able to assess, that's the real deal, that one's not. Amen? Amen. So even the world tests us and tries us to see whether or not you're the real deal. Because the Bible makes it very clear. Ye are not your own. And when we are constantly yielded unto the Lord every single day, we become that light that they can see. We, 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 are, we are basically giving of that bread of life. But, you know, when, when we are able to pray for them and, and they know that we're praying for them, that means something. And, of course... We're the only one that's able to offer them real hope because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? See, you're not bought. You're not your own. You're bought with a price as he continues on in that, in that same passage and keeping in mind every single day, the reason I'm not my own is because I'm bought with a price. Which leads us, as we close, it's this thought. So then, what is our responsibility? Unlike Israel... Don't become lax. Don't become lazy in our walk with God or our service to Him. And always constantly remember that <clears throat> we're to stay close to Him. And as He tells us, draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. And we can hold on to that truth. And by holding on to that truth, you know what that helps you to do? It helps you to shun away any form of idolatry that would try to make its way into your life. Now, you know, sometimes we, we think of idolatry and we think of somebody bowing down to some Buddhist monk or some fat-bellied, you know, whatever little thing out there. And we think of that from that standpoint. But that's, that's not real idolatry, is it? I mean, that's the epitome of idolatry. But that's not real idolatry, is it? What is idolatry? Make it simple. What's idolatry? Somebody say it loud enough that I can hear it, because I'm an old man, I can't hear well. So say it loud enough where I can hear it. Anything that comes between you and God has become an idol. When's the last time we stopped about that? Thought about that? Anything. I had a soldier years ago, female soldier, she was a single mom. And she, I was having chapel one day, and we were talking about her family. And she said something to me, and it just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. She looked at me, and she goes, Chaplain, I just worship the ground that my daughter walks on. She had a little girl about four or five years old, and I stopped her. I said, oh, please don't say that. She was a born-again believer, but she, she said this, and I said, oh, please don't say that. She goes, why? I do. I just love my... I, say that you love her. Say that you care for her, but don't make her an idol, would you? Well, why? I said, because God has this way... 
of removing anything that gets in the way of our relationship with Him. And if, there, it's, if it's such a thing as an idol and you're worshiping this daughter as an idol, be careful. You're not setting yourself up to where God has to remove something. And she's like, oh. So sometimes even in our terminology, we have to be careful of how we say things. But in our belief to where nobody else sees, have we set up some idols in our lives? Of things, anything that we've allowed to come between us and God. Which leads me back to our, our topic. If we are the temple of God, is God going to allow us to continue to have those idols in our lives without some kind of consequence or without Him making some kind of a statement about it? Aren't you so glad we have the Word of God? Because He answers that question. Remember a guy by the name of Nehemiah? by the name of Ezra, and how the children had been into exile. And as they came back, they were rebuilding the walls, they were rebuilding the temple, and, and they were rebuilding this whole aspect of, the, of reestablishing the worship. But as they were going back and forth, some things had begun to happen. For instance, one of those was, there was a guy by the name of Tobiah and Sam Ballot. There in that story, in that episode, and how they were established right out off the front. Right at the beginning of this account, they were established as enemies of God. Amen? They were constantly trying to do everything to thwart the work of the wall and of the temple and everything else. This guy was a burr in the saddle to the children of Israel. An enemy of God. Are you with me? But by the time Nehemiah comes back a couple of times from being the cupbearer, all of a sudden at the end, where did we find Tobiah? He was living in one of the chambers which was attached to the temple inside the walls. What? How did that happen? Somebody dropped their guard, didn't they? Who was he? Help me. The enemy of God. But where was he living? Inside the temple. Somebody said, how'd that happen? I know how it happened. When we start getting lax and lazy and dropping our guard and being all cozy with the things of the world, it's amazing what you allow to get close to you. Are you with me? Tobiah was, I mean, Nehemiah was just a little upset. Helped the man out of the temple. <laughs> by the hair of his head. But that wasn't enough. Because when him and Ezra go into the temple later, what they find is there's all kinds of trash and idolatry that has, been, that has come into the temple. And they decided to have a day of spring cleaning and said it's time to get all this trash out of the house of God. And they basically, they didn't have a yard sale. They had a bonfire. And they brought all the stuff out into the streets and outside the walls and burned it, destroyed it, which is exactly what should have happened before it ever ended up 
in the temple. Are you following me? Because, see, that's what God said. There, is, there, there isn't supposed to be this stuff in the temple. This is a place of holiness. This is a place of reverence. Question, why did it ever end up there to begin with? So let's fast forward. Who's the temple now? Take your finger, put it in the air, and go like this. Me. Question, does God have the same expectations as he did for the original temple when it comes to that, yes or no? It should be a place of holiness. It should be a place of reverence. It's one thing to say that we've allowed the enemy of the world to be in. That's an atrocity. But even those little things that we allow to slip in, that trash, those things that we know, they're not supposed to be there. And they've crept in. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? There was a day back in 1986, before any of you were even thought of, young evangelist, older evangelist at that time, came to Nuremberg, Germany, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. This young lieutenant went to that revival meeting. By the grace of God, there was a young soldier who had invited me to, out to, to that service. A pastor who was wise enough who had this re- evangelist come in, but had this revival meeting. I came to that revival meeting. The guy who was preaching that day was a guy by the name of Ron Comfort. Preached the Bible, preached the truth. Second night of that revival, I got saved. Man, I'm going to tell you what. There was a change that took place in my life like you wouldn't believe. It was so much so that my wife, about a year and a half later, who had come out of the Church of Christ thinking that she was saved all of her life, she got saved. And when she got saved and everything, the Lord just began to work in our whole family. We just had one child at that time, but began to work in an amazing way. And I got to tell you, the first time that I came face to face with this truth and I heard it, the Lord moved in me in a way that I just went, whoa, stop. And here was the response. Is there things in my life that would be displeasing to God even that much? You know what my wife and I did? We went home after one of those services. We took a box and we went through our house and we did a little spring cleaning. Actually, we went to the dumpster because anything that we found there, which was my DVDs, which was my music, which was books, which is anything else that we would say, this is not glorifying to God. We prayed and we threw it in that box. And we went through and took that box. Who'd you give it to? Your best friend? I wouldn't have given that to my worst enemy. I took it out to the dumpster and threw it away. Thousands of dollars of stuff. Threw it away. Why? Because I took that verse seriously. When God says, you are the temple. You are to be a place of holiness. You are to be a place of reverence. Because my spirit dwells Within you. I got a question. How comfortable is the Spirit in your dwelling? And another question Is there anything in that dwelling, in that temple, that would quench the work of the Spirit? Or that would cause the Spirit to say, Oh man, I'm having to live amongst some trash. 
here. You following me? So maybe today, this would be a day to where we could do some cleaning. Pray and ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with? Even something simple that I've allowed to slip in that would not be pleasing to you.